Would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? It's the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Most gracious God, our heavenly Father, in whom alone dwelleth all fullness of light and wisdom, illuminate our minds. We beseech thee by thine Holy Spirit and the true understanding of thy word. We ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, who hath taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. The word nostalgia was created in 1688 by a Swiss medical student named Johannes Hoffer. He was searching for a way to describe this new kind of extreme homesickness that he witnessed in Swiss mercenaries. As they left their homeland to go into battle, they found themselves so intensely longing for home that it was literally making them sick. Symptoms included, and I'm not making this up, dreaming of the Swiss Alps, fainting, fever, and even death. And so Johannes Hofer named this condition nostalgia. He combined two Greek words, meaning homecoming and pain, and he put them together. In other words, originally nostalgia was a form of illness and a grave one at that. We don't use the word nostalgia that way anymore, do we? Today, nostalgia has taken on a much more positive connotation. In many ways, people see nostalgia as a, a very romantic thing, that we are wistfully remembering and longing for the past. And so nostalgia today has found its way into art and architecture, the way that you might see the 1950s architecture, mid-century modern, making a comeback. Our nostalgia finds its way into the way that we think about politics or social theory, that if we could just go back to the good old days, maybe life would be much more simple. And nostalgia finds its way into the church. And oftentimes we say things or think things like, if we could just recover the first century church, maybe then, Maybe then we could begin to see a work of God in our midst. You see, the problem with nostalgia is that it offers a lie. As if the past is somehow always better than the present. But more than offering a lie, it doesn't deliver on its promise that dreaming and longing for the past does no present good. And so as we celebrate the Reformation, we do so not for the sake of nostalgia, we do so because it's our history. It's our story. It's the story of where we come from and it explains our present even now. 
And my friends, what I want us to see, not only this Sunday, but every Sunday that we are in the book of Acts, is that we can do the same thing with the early church. That as we read the book of Acts together as a church, we can look back on the first century church and think, if we could just go backwards, as if God is not at work today. But the message of the book of Acts is this, God is at work today just as much as he was 2,000 years ago. And for the next two Sundays, we're going to look at the events surrounding Pentecost. We do so not looking back with nostalgia, wondering if we could somehow recreate Pentecost in our midst today, but we look back on Pentecost because Pentecost tells us this, the Holy Spirit has come and he is with us now and he is equipping us with power until Christ comes again. Next week, we'll look at how this power, the power of the Holy Spirit will ultimately change the world This morning, today, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit has radically transformed the church of Jesus Christ. God has given the gift of the Holy Spirit to us as his church. We worship the same God as Calvin did. We worship the same God as the disciples did at Pentecost. We've been given the same gospel, and we have been filled with the same Holy Spirit. I want to look at this gift of the Holy Spirit this morning in four brief ways. The first way is this. I want to look at the Holy Spirit as a promise. Look with me at verse 1 in Acts chapter 2. Luke tells us, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, there's just a few things I want to point out before we get ahead of ourselves. Notice Luke tells us again, they are all together They are patiently coming together to pray and to worship as they wait. We're also told that they had gathered on the day of Pentecost. I'll speak more about the feast of Pentecost next week, but what I want to tell you this morning is that Pentecost is just a Greek word for the word 50th. This Jewish feast occurred 50 days after Passover, and among many other things, it was a feast to commemorate the giving of the Old Testament. And so this is significant. In the Old Testament, God gave the law. In the New Testament, God gave his spirit. But perhaps the most important word that we might overlook in verse 1 of chapter 2 is the very first word. It's the word when. Luke uses the word when often, both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, not just to describe an occurrence, but anticipation. For example, in his gospel, Luke 9 when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up to the cross. In other words, every time that Luke uses the word when, he's anticipating an expected event in the gospel, the expectation that Jesus Christ would die and rise again. And in the book of Acts, the expectation that the Holy Spirit would come to be given to the church. And so it's as if Luke is saying here in verse 1, finally, after all this time, All of this waiting, the day of Pentecost had arrived and the Holy Spirit was coming. So first and foremost, we must understand that the Holy Spirit was a promise, a promise given through the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Joel 2, Joel prophesies this. He says, it'll come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The apostle Peter will quote these very verses word for word in his sermon at Pentecost. It's as if Peter is saying this prophecy has been fulfilled. A promise, a promise of the Holy Spirit that one day God would send his very presence to his people. It's a promise that Christ himself made at the end of the book of Luke. Behold, Jesus said, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, but you, Jesus said, will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. But perhaps the most significant place in the Gospels where we see Jesus promise the Holy Spirit is in the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 16. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ to his disciples. He told them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. How can he say that? Because what Jesus is telling his disciples and even telling us as a New Testament church that is actually better for us today, now that we have the Holy Spirit, than it was for the disciples when they were walking with him face to face. How could that be? How could it be better for us now that Jesus has died, has risen again and ascended? When we cannot see him, how could it be better for us now that we have the Holy Spirit? Richard Gaffin addresses this question, great little book called Perspectives on Pentecost. He says, the gift of the Spirit is nothing less than the gift of Christ himself to his church. And this sense, the gift of the Spirit, is the crowning achievement of Christ's work. In other words, all that Jesus Christ said and did has led up to this moment at Pentecost. His incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension has all been building up to this moment moment. It is the climax. It is the apex. It is everything. What is it? It is the moment that Christ is giving his church the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean for us? Well, second, we must also understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. I want to look at the person of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 2. Suddenly, Luke says, there came from heaven. In other words, the very same place that Christ has just ascended to out of that place, out of heaven, has come down. This great sound, the sound of God's Spirit descending on his people. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. Okay, It's not some kind of force or power. The Holy Spirit is not even an it. The Holy Spirit is a him. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. To be a Christian is to be Trinitarian. To believe and to commune 
with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you believe that, Christian, this morning? Do you believe that he is three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because I think while many of us would agree with the idea of the Trinity, we have a hard time comprehending it, and for good reason. You see, we can understand God the Father in terms of his fatherhood, right? In terms of his authority, in terms of his power and his might. We understand God the Son in terms of his sonship, in terms of his humility, his incarnation, even his sacrifice. But how do we comprehend God the Spirit? If he is the third person of the Trinity, then what is he like? Luke tells us, Acts chapter 2, verse 2. He's like a mighty rushing wind. The word spirit in Hebrew is the word ruach. In Greek, it's the word pneuma. Both of these words mean wind or breath. It's a powerful image if you think about it long enough. My daughter, at the age of five years old, is very good at asking questions. She is gifted. And her questions have a way of putting you in your place, no matter how confident you might be in what you know, or at least you think you know. And so I'll never forget when she asked me, Daddy, can we see God? I answered, no, we cannot see God. God is spirit. That means that though God is invisible, God is all around us, and we know he is there. And so what do you think she asked next? How do you know? How do you know? If we can't actually see him, then how do we know he is there? It's a great question, a question we all have probably asked ourselves at one time or another, and I must admit that in that moment, I found myself stumped. How do you explain that to a five-year-old? And then I remembered a sermon that Billy Graham once gave. He said, can you see God? You haven't seen him. I've never seen the wind. I see the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. There's a mystery to it. And you know, he's right. There is a mystery to it. God, the spirit, is like the wind. You see, wind has the power to level entire cities And yet, it's able to be gentle to carry a seed over to fresh soil to take root. So the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit comes with power, and yet it comes with grace. He comes upon us, and he has done so from creation all the way to our salvation. Genesis 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit was there at creation, hovering, blowing over the chaos of the deep. When God made Adam in his image, we're told that he breathed the breath of God into him. And when Nicodemus asked Jesus how somebody could be born again, what did he say? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, God, the Holy Spirit, 
has been, is now, and will be involved in everything that God does because he is God. From creation to our redemption, God, the Holy Spirit, is intimately involved. So much so that John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, said when God planned the great work of saving sinners, he gave two gifts. He gave his son and he gave his spirit. So the third thing we must consider when we try to think about who the Holy Spirit is and what he has done for us, we must recognize that the Holy Spirit is present. If there's anything that Pentecost teaches us today, is that the Holy Spirit is now present with us. Look with me, verse 3. And divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. Fire is an image in the Old Testament for the presence of God, the burning bush, a pillar of fire leading the Israelites through the wilderness, the fire that was present at the altar. Deuteronomy is saying that God is a consuming fire. And then John the Baptist saying that one day when Christ would come, that he would baptize with the Spirit and with fire. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean that we are now baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire? What does it mean that the fire came and rested on each of the disciples at Pentecost? In the Old Testament, the presence of God was confined to a place. The burning bush, the pillar of fire, the tabernacle, the temple. But Luke tells us that when Jesus Christ died, the curtain that separated the presence of God and the Holy of Holies was torn in two. And no longer is the presence of God confined to a place, but he has been given to a people. We now are the temple of God. Paul says it this way, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God the Spirit dwells in you? And so at Pentecost, we see fire resting on each one of the disciples, not consuming them in judgment, but illuminating their hearts and minds to be filled with the very presence of God himself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our story. God no longer is confined to a place, a building, but he now is in a people that's you and that's me. What that means should cause us to fall on our face and worship. The God who is there who made heaven and earth, hovering over the face of the deep, the God who breathed life into Adam, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who led the Israelites through the wilderness, the God who is there at Pentecost now dwells in you. He lives in you. He has taken up residence in you and now he is giving life to you. It's the last thing I want us to look at this morning is the Holy Spirit gives us power. Look at verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This question has divided the Christian church in many ways. Entire denominations have been started to try to interpret what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are some who would tell you 
that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is some kind of second-tier kind of Christianity. They're looking back on these events at Pentecost, recognizing that the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit, but they had faith in Jesus. And now, secondarily, they're given the Holy Spirit. And so perhaps it's the same with us. Perhaps being filled with the Holy Spirit is some kind of upper echelon, second-tier kind of Christian experience. The question we have to ask ourselves is if what we read at Pentecost, is that normative for us today? In other words, is our Christian experience today the same as it was for the disciples at Pentecost? And the answer is no and yes. Pentecost is a once-in-a-lifetime event, a moment when God broke in and began to establish his kingdom through his church is an event that we do not look back on. For us as Christians, our homesickness does not look backward, it looks forward. And so we must not fall into temptation to try to recover Pentecost for us today, but to recognize Pentecost is a gift that says you have the power of the Holy Spirit right here and right now. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit was an extraordinary moment for these disciples But because it was extraordinary for them, it is now ordinary for us every single day. So we must pray daily that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit as Paul calls us to pray in Ephesians 5. When Paul says we should be filled with the Spirit, he's not saying be filled with something new. He's saying, no, be filled with what you already have. Brothers and sisters, Pentecost is a reminder of the power that we now have residing in us. Power of illumination to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Power of transformation that we are now sanctified and changed into the image of Jesus and power to extend the kingdom of Jesus Christ right here in Dallas and to the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to hear these words. Paul's prayer for us as his church, 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. He calls us to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You have been given the spirit of power. Paul is calling us, he's praying that we would fan it into flame. How do we do that? We plead. We plead that Christ would fill us with the same Holy Spirit that he filled with his disciples at Pentecost. And that we would recognize that we now are looking forward until the day he comes again to see his spirit bring saving faith to a world who desperately needs him. Please pray with me, Father. This is a truth that we confess is a mystery to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would use your word now to pierce us through. And that, Holy Spirit, you would indeed fill us. That we would submit to your power. That we would submit to your presence. And that we would see the great work the gospel has done in and through us in Jesus' name.
Amen.